you'll take your Bibles, please, open them to the book of Hebrews in the sixth chapter. If you join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, we return again to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9. We'll have at least one more week in these two verses, um, maybe a bit more, we'll see. Beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give us grace. Make us indeed a people who inherit the promise in the fullness of all that it means. We pray, God, that there would be no one here who is deceived about their soul. And we pray, God, that as we labor for the sake of the Christ, that you would grant to us a harvest. Lord, let us pursue the promise with everything that we are, that Jesus would be honored not only in our proclamation, but in how we believe and how we trust and how we understand all that he has done. God, let us give much glory to the risen Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. We have been considering hope, its power, its purpose. But hope has a sister, a twin sister named Faith. And faith is a synonym for trust. And everything that we have to do with our God is about faith and trust. We need to live in an idea that God is faithful always and that he can be trusted. And We need to think about this. The whole question of salvation revolves around trust. It revolves around trusting God, that God would keep his word, trusting his ability to keep his promises, and trusting his veracity when he makes them. We're saved because God does everything needful to save us. He has sent his son accepted his sacrifice, raised him from the dead, and given us his spirit as a guarantee. But none of this matters to us until we take him at his word and believe him. And we cannot do that until he changes our hearts to enable us to believe. And why do we still proclaim the gospel? Why do we still preach? Why do we do the things that we do? Firstly, because God commands it. Secondly, because he has promised, there it is again, that the gospel is the thing that he uses to bring life to the dead. It's the one tool that we have been given with promised power. But if we're going to be earnest about proclaiming the gospel and, and faithful in that proclamation, it's important that we ourselves register the truth that the whole of the gospel is rooted in the promise of God. It's absolutely about God being trustworthy and absolutely about God being trusted by us and by those to whom we proclaim him. The whole of the gospel is about trusting God. It's about believing him. And it begins at the point that we can be forgiven our sin. That we trust God to do what he said he would do in regards to our sin. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now, I want you to look at this passage, and I want you to search for what part of that is ours to do. I'll wait. (laughs) I'll wait a long time, because there is no part of that which is ours to do. This displays the working of God, and there is no part of our salvation which is connected to our works There's no part of our salvation which is connected to our ability. There's no part of our salvation which is connected to anything that we do or anything that we can do. The fullness of our salvation is rooted and anchored in God doing exactly what He said He was going to do. This is why the writer of Hebrews tells us that we need to press on in hope after the fullness of the assurance of hope, so that we imitate those who, by their patient continuance, by their obedience to God's promise, inherit that promise. By the fact that they believe that God did exactly what He said He would do. By the fact that they trust Him and take Him at His word. This is believing God. This is trusting Him. This is the faith that He gives us to operate our lives in. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what we're believing God for when we talk about being forgiven of our sin is salvation. What we're believing God for is the fact that he will save us, that he will do everything that he promised he would do, and that we will receive from his hand that which he has promised. And what he has promised is the salvation of our souls. What he has promised is that his work is sufficient, his grace is sufficient, and everything that is required for us to be saved is given to us by his hand. This is his promise. And beloved, understand this. The heart of all of it is, do we believe God? Do we take him at his word? Do we trust what he has said? Do we know that every word he speaks is absolutely trustworthy, absolutely reliable, absolutely can be depended upon? Do we know that in our bones? Do we live as if we know that's true? 
Do we think? Do we act? Do we talk as if we know that this is the very truth of very truth? Everything that is revolves around the question of whether or not we believe God and take Him at His word. Now, we can talk about forgiveness of sins, but for many, that's kind of an esoteric idea. For many, that's an idea that, well, frankly, they're not really sure what sin is, and they kind of think that if they understood what sin was, they wouldn't really have any because, well, they don't buy that whole system. But do you understand that every single person, whether they believe in the concept of sin, the reality of sin as Scripture defines it or not, is very in touch with a word that's similar but has different implications. And that word is guilt. We all know we're guilty. We all know we have done things that we ought not to have done. We all recognize that there are places in our lives where we have not done what was expected of us, either by someone else or even by ourselves. We all carry guilt. Every single one of us has to deal with the question of our guilt. And when God talks to us about forgiveness, not only does he forgive sin, but he also takes away the guilt that goes along with it. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, tells us this. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the puring of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. You see... The scripture tells us that the law of God is written on the walls of our heart. That every single one of us knows the right thing to do. That we understand what it is that is required of us according to God's law. We understand what is required of us. There is no mistake that nearly every culture that the world has ever known has a law which sounds startlingly familiar. It contains things like You shall not murder. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall be faithful to your marriage covenants. These things are common understanding. These things are things that the scripture tells us are there because God himself has written them on the walls of our heart. And no matter how much our culture wants to disassociate themselves from that natural moral law, whether they want to call it white supremacy or patriarchy or whatever other new idea, newfangled thing they want to attach to basic decency. The fact of the matter is, our heart knows the truth. We understand our guilt. Now, we can't follow our heart to do what's right because the scripture tells us that the heart is deceitful because while the heart knows what God requires of it, the heart also knows it doesn't want to do it. And it will do whatever it can do to convince you that whatever you want is really the right thing. 
This is why the culture will tell you things like, follow your heart. Don't do that. It's a bad idea. The heart is not to be trusted. But we can know that when we're speaking to somebody about what God requires, you have an ally inside of them. Their conscience knows the truth. Their conscience knows the reality of what is expected of them by their creator. And when you speak the truth of God to them, their conscience resonates with what God is saying. They will likely be angry with you. They will likely reject it. They will likely tell you you're full of hot air or something else. They will likely tell you all sorts of ugly, vile things. And the truth of the matter is, is that they tell you those things only because they're being battered from the inside. Their own heart is crying out against their sin. They know their guilt. Amen? Amen? They know their guilt. What the scripture promises us is that the death of Christ removes not only our sin, but our guilt. Look, I know I've done terrible things. I know that I am guilty. But guilt has no place in my life. I have been delivered from the burden of my guilt by the blood of Christ. And I have been delivered from the burden of my guilt, not because I am a good person, not because I have done anything worthy of being delivered of that guilt, but I am delivered of the burden of my guilt because Christ Jesus bore my guilt and bore my sin on the cross. And there was a very clear response in God's hand because of that. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, speaking to us about how God viewed the death of Christ in regards to our guilt, tells us this. Starting at verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You were buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespass, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it, To the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Your guilt in the sight of God, your guilt in the sight of the law, your guilt in the sight of your own conscience when Christ is applied to you, understands that all of it has been taken out of the way because your guilt and your sin and the trespasses which you have committed have been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. They're gone. In his flesh, he paid your debt. And this is the glory of the gospel. It delivers us from guilt. And more than that, it makes us acceptable in the sight of God. It makes us acceptable as Citizens of heaven who are seen as having lived righteous lives, you are given the full righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. You're given the full and absolute credit as if everything Jesus did right was counted to your account. But more than that, God also promises that having removed your guilt and having accepted you as honorable citizens of the kingdom, he adopts you as sons and daughters. He brings you into the family. Look at Galatians chapter 4. You're still in Colossians. Turn to the left just a little bit. Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 4. It says this. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now all the ladies in the room understand that when he says son, he also means daughter. This is one place where gender is ubiquitous. You have been accepted as children of the Most High. You have been accepted as family. And when God adopts you, He adopts you into His family without prejudice and without reservation. You are not a second-rate citizen. You are not a second-rate son. You are not the red-headed stepchild of the family of God. Amen? It doesn't exist. Do you know why? Because the one who bought you And the one who sent him to buy you will not have you as a second-rate citizen. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and following. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 15, Paul writes this. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. But you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Very similar to what he said in Galatians, but he says something more. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That means that everything that Jesus receives as the elder brother, as the one who came first, as the supreme being of all things, everything that he receives by his own inheritance, he willingly shares full measure with you. He holds nothing back. He gives to his brothers and sisters, purchased by right of his own blood, a full inheritance. You are beloved of God by the working of Christ, not by anything you have done, not by anything you have contributed, not by anything you can contribute. You are a child of the King because God Himself chose to make you one and did everything necessary that it would be so. Absolutely, fully, and completely the work of God to save His own people. And because... Family is always best together. He promises us that he has a place for us where he will take us to be with him. Look at John chapter 14. 
John chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Jesus, speaking to his disciples on the last night that he was alive on the earth, said, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And that's a bad translation. That's a King James translation. The word should be rooms or apartments, places in the house of God, not separate buildings off someplace where you're hiding away from Him. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. This is the very word of God to us. And he has promised us a home with him that will last for all of eternity. Now, Part of the dynamic that's involved here is belief in the promise of God. But we also have to believe that Jesus can do everything he said he would do. Because the faith that inherits the promise is faith that is powered by the person of God, by the person of Christ, and by the fulfillment that he gives to everything that he said he was going to do. If I were to say to you, I'm going to build you a device by which you will be able to fly without an airplane, without a helicopter, without anything. I'm just going to let you, I'm going to build this magic device that will allow you to levitate and be any place you want to be by flying around. You would be very wise to view that statement as suspect. Suspect. In other words, I would either be delusional or lying Or both. First of all, we know it's impossible. Second of all, we know if it were possible, I don't possess the knowledge or power to do it. You see, the promise is directly connected to the person who promises it. What we can believe has to be filtered through who we believe it of. So our vision of God and our understanding of who He is, our vision of Christ and our understanding of who He is, is of paramount importance to our ability to believe anything He says. This is why what God does when He calls us to life is open our eyes to the understanding of His person. This is what Jesus had in mind when he said, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. A clear vision of Christ, a clear vision of his person, his attributes, his beauty, his abilities, his strengths, his glory, cannot help but draw those who the Holy Spirit is calling. Our job is to lift high the name of Christ, lift high the person of Christ, lift high the truth of everything that Christ did and everything that Christ is, But we won't do that if we believe that somehow or another the power is ours. We won't do that if we believe that somehow or another it requires our works. Ask any Mormon you meet 
What's the foundation of you believing you're going to get to heaven? And they'll tell you, well, I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I do that, and I believe these things, and I go here, and I have fulfilled my two years of mission, and I've done this, and I've done that, because at the bottom of it, it's a works-based salvation. Ask any Catholic you meet the same question. They'll have a slightly different list, but at the bottom of it, it's a works-based salvation. The, the, The truth of the matter is, Anything that detracts from who Christ is centers around our works and our ability to do something to help him out. This is why the gospel is so deliberately Christocentric. The gospel is deliberately focused on Jesus and his work and his will and his power and his strength. And the entirety of it is to bring us to a place where we do not see us in the mix at all. Because there's no place for us in the mix. Your strength does nothing but ruin things. Your only ability in the sight of doing righteousness is to mess it up. You're pretty good at that. I'll give you that. But your only ability is to break things. My only ability is to break things. Any man's only ability, and any woman, don't want to leave the ladies out of that one either, our only ability is to break things. This is because of the fall. It's because of the fact that in Adam's sin, his progeny died. You enter into the world spiritually dead. You enter into the world physically living, already in the midst of dying, but spiritually dead from the get-go. There is no part of you that resonates with God. It is only God who calls the dead to life, and only God who does the work of saving a people. This means that if there is any hope whatsoever for us to get to God, He has to be the one to reach us. This means that when Jesus says, as we just read, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody gets to the Father except through me, he knew what he was talking about, and he meant what he said. So when some supposedly Christian preacher gets on national television and says, well, I can't really tell you whether Muslims will be in heaven, you know something very important about the man. He doesn't know it because he's not going to be there himself. Because he doesn't know the Christ who delivered him, or or he claims delivered him from sin. Beloved, I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. But we have to understand that Jesus meant what he said when he said, There is no path to God except me. You cannot be a follower of Christ and question that statement. Do you understand why? Because if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and question that fundamental statement, you don't believe Him. And if you don't believe Him, you can't believe in Him. You can't believe anything He says. If something that big is wrong, then chuck it all. Throw it all out. Because every other word he said is absolute nonsense too. Beloved, we we need to be unapologetic about this. And we need to be unapologetic not because we need to be mean, but because that is the truth that delivers people from hell. 
There is no other way by which they will not end up under the wrath of God for all of eternity. The scripture tells us in John chapter, six, or John chapter 3, verse 36, that those who do not believe in the Son will abide under the wrath of God. They're already there. They're not going to be placed under the wrath of God. They're born under the wrath of God. And they will remain there, for Jesus Christ is the only way of escape from the wrath of God. There is no other hope. And if we're soft on that issue because we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, all we're doing is damning them. All we're doing is condemning them. If we want to be soft on that truth because we don't want to offend them, they'll be the most unoffended people in hell. And I'll tell you the truth. If I have a choice between being offended now and being in hell, offend me. Please, offend me. We have to be earnest about this. And part of the problem that I'm really struggling to express is the fact that the church, the people who name the name of Jesus, are often the ones who back up from this. Listen to the conversations. You'll hear unbelievers tell Christians, well, I'm not a Christian because I think you're mean because you think the only people that are going to be in heaven are Christians. And Christians will say, oh, no, 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 I didn't say that. Then be quiet. You're not saying anything worth hearing because Jesus said that. Beloved, we cannot be soft on the truth of what Jesus Christ has said. Because fundamentally, when we get soft on what Jesus has said, then we are soft on Jesus, and we don't know who He is anyway. We have to take Him at His word. We have to believe Him. Because the entire structure of everything that we need, everything that we hope for, everything that we trust, everything that we believe is predicated on the fact that Jesus made a bunch of promises that he had the power to fulfill. Remember, my, my, I can make you a device that will let you levitate? Right? Don't believe that because I can't do it. I'm not trustworthy in that fact. And if I actually told you that, I would tell you by telling you that that I'm not trustworthy at all. So I'm not really telling you that, okay? Don't get confused. If Jesus is to be trusted, he must be believed. We have to trust what he said because everything is rooted and anchored in the things that he said he was going to do, that he had the authority to do, and that he had the ability to do. You tracking with me so far? It's important that you are, because we're going to go into this. You you with me at the... uh, We're going to open the door now. Everybody tracking? Okay. Firstly, he said he was going to die for his own sheep and pay for their sin and their guilt. Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheep, do not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. 
To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. They will by no means follow a stranger, will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. That's us, by the way. That's Gentiles. That's that's you and me, everybody who is not Jewish, who is saved. That's who he's talking about. He had you in mind when he said this. Other sheep I have that are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. There is so much in that passage, we could spend months just right here. But I want to point out a couple of really important components. Jesus said, I have come to die. I've come to give my life for my people. I will die for my sheep. And more than that, I will die for my sheep willingly by my own desire to die. Nobody has the right to kill me. Nobody has the right to take it from me. It is my choice, my desire, my will. I lay down my life. And since I laid it down, I also have been given the authority to take it up again. What did he just say? He said, I have the power and the will to die, and I have the power and the will to be raised again. That's a pretty big statement. Amen? If you don't believe that he was who he said he was, then the only way to take that statement is this guy's a little woohoo. He's a loony. Because what he just said is as impossible as my imaginary levitation machine. Unless, unless, he's exactly who he said he was. You see, we have to take him at his word because the things that he said, they are beyond anything that anybody has ever said before or since. Because Jesus is beyond anybody who ever was or ever will be again. He is God made flesh. 
We read that already. In the fullness of time, God put on flesh. He, He sent His Son. He is God made flesh among us. And because of that, Jesus came to die for His own and pay for their guilt to purchase them. And if there's any question whatsoever that God meant what Jesus said, and I didn't say that incorrectly, God meant what Jesus said, if you have any doubt about that whatsoever, then find the tomb. Find the body. People have been searching for the body of Jesus for millennia. They haven't pulled it off yet. They could take you to Muhammad's grave. They could take you to the shrine of Buddha. They can take you to all the places of all the false gods and point to their bones and say, we we reverence their bones. But they cannot take you to the grave of Jesus and produce a body because He did exactly what He said He came to do. He died. And then he got up again. And it's important that you understand that because listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, verses 23 and following. Romans chapter 4, Paul writes this. Speaking of Abraham and things being accounted to him for righteousness, he says this. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. In other words, righteousness was credited to Abraham because he believed God. That's what we're talking about. And we'll we'll deal with this passage and, and Abraham's belief in God more next week. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Verse 25, everybody look, everybody pay attention, I want you to see this. I want you to see this is not me, this is God speaking to us. Who was delivered up because of our offenses, that's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 10, I came to lay down my life for the sheep. He was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. What does that mean? That means that the fact that Jesus Christ is no longer in the grave is evidence that not only did He have the power to do what He said He would do, but that God accepted His death in your place. This gives us the bedrock of trust, knowing that what Jesus said He came to do, He actually accomplished. The empty grave is proof that the sins of the sheep have been forgiven by God. They're gone. He did not make a potentiality. He did not make it possible that maybe somebody who might believe could maybe perhaps have their sin forgiven if they do all the right things. He actually paid for sin And God proved that He accepted payment by raising Jesus from the dead. That is an evidentiary statement by the God of the universe that your sin and your guilt, if you are found in Christ, have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west, and they will never be charged to your account. They are gone. That is a huge statement to just believe at face value if Jesus is not trustworthy. 
Amen? If Jesus cannot be trusted, then the entire structure falls apart. If Jesus cannot be trusted, then nothing that we do and nothing that we say matters. So I bring us back to the original question, did Jesus mean what he said when he said, nobody gets to the Father except by me? Yes, he did. Did he have the right to say it? Yes, he did. Because he knew not only what he came to do, but he knew who he came to do it for. I lay down my life for the sheep. Not a goat in the mix. Now, Josh isn't here to illustrate my point and tell me that I'm right, but Kathy knows the difference between sheep and goats. They're not the same critter, are they? No. A sheep is not... Oh, you guys have sheep and goats too. They're not the same critter. Ain't it fun being in farm country? (laughs) They're not the same animal. Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. He didn't die for goat one. Not one of them. And every single sheep has been paid for in his blood. And Jesus was raised from the grave because God accepted that payment. Because of this, we know that every single one for whom Christ died will be found in heaven. Absolutely, without question, without kerfluffle, without wobbling, without anything, we know that every single one for whom Christ died will be found in heaven. And it's not because of their goodness, but because of His Not because of their strength, but because of His. Not because of their will, but because of His. Because He willed to die for them and He willed to get up again. He willed to apply His own blood to their sin and God willed to accept it. You had nothing to do with that exchange, beloved. You have no part in it whatsoever. Your only part in it is the mercy of God that draws you in. Your only part in it is the grace that actually applies it to you. And you know that mercy and grace has nothing whatsoever to do with your work. God raised him from the dead because our sins have been forgiven. And in his action, he also has the power and the promise to heal all of our afflictions, all of our infirmities, all of our bondages, and all of our sorrows. Isaiah 53. Look there with me. Just a few verses out of this magnificent passage in the Old Testament. But Isaiah 53, starting at verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone into his own way. And the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Starting at verse 27. Jesus said, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will often find people who want to contend for their own power of salvation. They'll point you to verses 28, 29, and 30. In it, there is the appearance of an absolute open invitation that anybody who is willing can come. And as long as you understand that nobody is willing, it's truly an open invitation. Anybody who is willing may come. But verse 27 tells you who will be willing. And the only ones who be willing are the ones to whom Jesus wills to reveal the Father. His will is the operative issue here. And we need to understand this because to do anything less takes away the veracity of what he said he came to do. This is worth just a minute or two of our time for us to really understand this. So bear with me. If Jesus died for everybody, then there is only the potential of forgiveness for anybody. It means that Jesus' death didn't actually pay for anybody's sin. It means that nobody's actually forgiven. There has to be something else introduced in order to pull the trigger on it, if you will. And generally, that's accepted by many to be our free will in the matter. The problem with that is that the scripture tells us plainly that nobody seeks after God that nobody will choose him, nobody will do what is right, nobody will make any move towards God. You're incapable of it. So what we create by this desire to fashion a kinder, gentler gospel, which absolves God of his guilt of damning people, is a gospel which doesn't have the power to deliver anybody because it delivers a gospel in which Jesus did not pay for any sin whatsoever. He merely paid so that there would be the potential of payment. And it's predicated upon our ability to do something to add to his work. Be it believe, or be it obey, or be it some other thing. It's important that we grasp this because we trust Christ to do what he said he came to do. And the scripture tells us plainly, that Jesus affirmed he was laying down his life to pay for the sheep. Either he is trustworthy or he is not. You can't stand in the middle. You can't pretend that Jesus didn't say everything that he said. In the end, what Jesus came to do was to set us free from sin in its entirety, to set us free from the power of guilt, to set us free from that which binds us to this world and to set us free from that which cripples us while we're here. He came to set us free 
from sin and death and guilt and hell. But you can bundle all of that together into one word. He came to set us free from us. And the minute that you try to put you back into what he did, you undo it all. You cannot add anything to the work of Christ and still have the gospel. It doesn't exist. The second that you try to make it about your ability, you undo it. Beloved, in the end, we have to take him at his word. We have to believe everything that he said. In John chapter 6, starting at verse 43, Jesus said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, They shall all be taught by God. And therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. This Jesus can do what he said he can do. And part of what he said he can do is to return and take us to be with him forever. It goes further than just the promise of an abode, be it apartment or mansion. I prefer the idea of an apartment or just, you know, a a sleeping bag on the floor right by where God sits. I'm cool with that too. It goes further than just having that spot because I can't get there without him. I can't get there on my own strength. I, I don't know the way. I only know him. Which is why he was very clear to say, I am the way. And why he was very clear to say, I will not leave you orphans in John 14, verse 18. I will come to you. That's his promise. I'll come to you. I'll come back. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Or Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Beloved, we believe every word that God has said because we believe in the veracity of the God who said it. We believe in the trustworthiness of the Jesus who came. We believe what he said because we believe him. And those things cannot be extricated one from another. The minute that you stop having faith in who he is, you also stop having faith in everything he said. And the minute that you don't believe what he said, you begin to doubt everything that he is. They have to be taken one and together. In the end, all of this is a belief which goes beyond anything that we can see or touch or verify or prove in any way that anybody's going to accept on simply man's wisdom. There's no way for us to know any of this apart from the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. 
you'll find people. You'll lay all of the evidence out about what Christ did and about the empty tomb, and they will find arguments. And they will find reasons to disagree. And they will not believe anything that you say. Because let's be honest with ourselves. This is all about faith. This is all about belief. We can't take them to a verifiable, discernible tomb and say, this is the empty tomb. You understand? We have to believe it. Now, it's really good evidence that unbelievers have been trying for millennia to find that tomb. Can't, because it's not there. There's no body in it. That's good evidence. But to see it that way requires something in us that we don't possess naturally. It requires faith. And faith is something that God gives. But let me give you some things to help think about. And maybe these thought-provoking ideas might help you provoke thought in somebody else. Firstly, the extravagance and the grandeur and the, the scope of everything that Jesus said he came to do is not something that a liar would make up. You're tracking with me just a little bit? When somebody tells a lie, you've got to tell a lie that has at least some scope of believability. Or they're going to call you out on it. I could say to you, I'm a woman. And anybody with half a brain would look at me and go, I don't think so. See, it's part of the problem that our culture is facing today is people have jettisoned that fundamental ability to say, obviously you're telling a lie. Obviously you're suffering from some form of mental illness. And so the lies that are being told are getting larger and larger and larger. Not only are they declaring that they are women, they're declaring that they are cats. It boggles the imagination. But there, there is still the truth that if you want a lie to be believed, it should be believable. And the things that Jesus said about himself, well... If they're not true, they're up there with, I'm a cat. I'll give you one, just for an example. Jesus was teaching in the house of Simon Peter. And the crowds were pressing in and nobody could get near him. And there were four men who had a friend who'd been lame from birth. And they really wanted him to get to Jesus because the word on the street was Jesus could heal people. And he'd proven it. He'd healed a lot of people already. And this is early in the ministry. And these four men, they they take their friend to Peter's house to let him see Jesus. And he can't get anywhere near him. So one of them has a bright idea. He says, you know, if we take him up on the roof, we could cut a hole in the roof. And we could lower him down through the hole. These are some desperate guys because Peter is notoriously hot-tempered. And it's Peter's house. Don't come cut a hole in my roof. You will not like what happens. Okay? 
Just saying. They cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down. And as they lower him down into the presence of Jesus, I promise you, the room went silent. First of all, it had gone silent as the hole starts to appear in the roof. But beyond that, here's this guy on a mat suddenly in front of Jesus and everybody wants to hear what Jesus says. And the four friends are peeking in the hole and they're looking and they're waiting. He's going to touch him. He's going to heal him. And Jesus calmly looks at this man, paralytic, unable to move, lying on his mat. And he says to him, your sins are forgiven. And I can hear the four friends on the roof. Just kill me now. Please, just kill me now. Peter's about to, and you'll probably be much more merciful than because all this was for nothing. Your sins are forgiven. Do you not know why we brought him to you, Jesus? The Pharisees immediately became incensed at him and thinking to themselves and reasoning to themselves and they're thinking, who is this man to say he has the right to forgive sins? Nobody forgives sins but God alone. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, why do you reason among yourselves that only God can forgive sin? You're right in saying that. And so that you know, let me ask you a question. Which one is easier to say? Be healed or your sins are forgiven? Now on the surface, this is a trick question because I could say to you, your sins are forgiven and nobody's going to know whether I spoke the truth until you get to heaven and you're not going to come back and tell me. It's pretty easy to say it. But if I believe in God and I take something which is only His and reserve it for myself, there's some consequences to that that I don't necessarily want to pay. So what's easy on one end may not really be easy in the end. But if I say to you, get up and take your mat, rise and walk out of this place, then it really is a question of, do I have the power to do what I've been telling people I can do? It's quite a dilemma. The Pharisees looked at each other and said... I don't know. Which one is easier? It's funny when Jesus asked them questions, a lot of times that was their answer. I don't know. You tell me. And Jesus said this, so that you may know that I have the authority to do what I said I just did. Get up. Take your mat and go home. Do you understand what just happened there? Jesus declared himself to be God and then proved it by what he did afterwards. Everything that Jesus did shows us who he is. You're not going to believe any of it until you see him. Until God opens the eyes of your heart and gives you a vision of Christ that makes you alive. You're not going to believe any of it. But the glory that's ours as followers of Christ is the promise that God gives to us that says that the proclamation of the gospel does just that. It calls dead men to life.
Amen. Look with me in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10. I knew where I was going. I'm skipping over about half my notes to get to the end. Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Beloved, when you proclaim the gospel, God's power goes through you and into those who he is calling. His power, conveyed through his word, calls dead men to life. His power, conveyed through his word, gives them spiritual eyes by which they see the glory of Christ and the guilt of their own sin. And the only response that they can have once their eyes have been opened and their hearts begin to be alive is to cry for mercy. The cry for mercy is the first word of a newly living heart. Oh God, forgive me. It is the voice of life. And it is because God has given faith where none existed. We believe because He has made us believe. We believe because He has imparted faith into dead men. We believe because every word that God has ever said is absolutely true. And while I can't prove that to you, I know that it's true. Amen. Amen. In the eyes of the world, that makes me a lunatic. It makes me a dreamer. It makes me a charlatan. And it makes me false. But I know there will come a day where they will stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and they will give testimony to the fact that He is exactly who He said He was. For every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord over all to the glory of the Father. 
The only question is, do it now or do it then? But you will do it. And Christ will receive His glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace. We pray, God, that you would use us mightily to call the dead to life. We pray, God, that you would allow that everything that we do and everything that we say would be an adornment to the gospel. Lord, I pray that in the midst of all that we are, our lives would reflect the majesty of the risen Christ. That you would let our words and our testimony and our very existence be such that Christ is honored. God, show us the glory that's been given to him from the foundation of the universe and allow us with that glory in our eyes to carry it to the lost. Father, forgive us for the trite and petty ways that we have lived our lives. And forgive us for the trite and petty ways with which we have dealt with your gospel. Let us preach it with power. Let the dead be raised. And let the world be turned that Christ would be honored. We ask it in His name and for His glory we pray. Amen. Amen.